Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we are excited to welcome Jenny Johnson to the podcast to discuss her extraordinary poem, Dappled Things. Jenny is the author of In Full Velvet. She is the recipient of a Whiting Award, a Hutter Fellowship, and an NEA Fellowship. She teaches at West Virginia University and the Rainier Writing Workshop. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us today, Jenny, and I was wondering if you could do us the honor of reading your poem for us. I would be happy to. Dappled Things Thank you, day, for dappled things. For ambrosia beetles streaking skylines inside a maple for pansies speckled as a painter's sleeve, for russet-crusted sidewalks of lichen, airy springs of fiery structured fringe, for pink corpuscles making midges soon to burst out the undersides of leaves. Thank you for all that still somehow counter, original, spare, and strange, for the brightening swell of a honeybee's sting for the alien markings on my girlfriend's cheek and how they form a perfect triangle. Thank you for the risen stars on the skin of an apple, which I slice into fine, thin crescents. For dapple is a word derived from apple, and apple once meant any fruit at all, born from a tree, lemon, fig, persimmon. Thank you, road apple, finger apple, earth apple, for all that Apple was before Apple acquired a stigma for being forbidden, marked, dappled, shadowed, grappling, stamped, juice, controlled, smudging of what twinkles unthinkably. And because I'm minion this morning to gay old music, thanks, gentle hop, for this thisness, for teaching attention how to mark hard word bodies with stress, acute glyphs, blue scores, for reckoning the risks and disciplines rod between sheets of loose-leafed linen. You knew few might hear your coded address. Do I look hard enough to receive? I'm not moved by God, but I am moved by this, to experience the largesse. What you look hard at seems to look hard at you. Oh, to be marked reciprocally. Yes, please, across, above, below, and with. I kiss my hand to male bonobos making out in public, in spite of Western science trying to explain away the glorious kink of spinner dolphins whistle clicks over under rolling, belly on belly clasping by the soft tips of flukes, riding dorsal rudders to the brink. I am inspired. Call my girlfriend. Say, won't you be my Olympic marmot, chewing on my ear till I lift my tail, my black-billed magpie babble-singing to my begging call, my lioness growl, thrust, roll on backs afterward, squeaky as killer whales. We could keep Contact relentless before the next sequence, diving deep in a reversed roll, double helix formation, splashing swagger to reveal the length of our 
pink organs. Or we could be lady elephants heading down to the watering hole, gearing up to gather friends in the yard for a yip per chorus, hammerhead stork pileup. Or love, we could pretend to be utter strangers. I, a house sparrow, and you, a cowbird, hopping over to chatter until you touch your lower bill, head bowed, my breast feathers. Our days are charged by so much nature. The succulents we carry to Alexis in a plastic bag after her surgery. A cat pawing at a mantis behind a window pane. What we didn't wash from the lettuce. Dirt that's good danger. Not pristine, not a baseline to hearken after romantically. Instead, I read that snowy cities should ready for rising heat, harder rain. Have I come to terms with dominance, what I have trammeled and fogged with my breath? Flush cut a redesigned ecology. The dead won't say how the forest was before we came. And the pheromones I bury my face in, under your arms, make me a hazy archaeologist. I must speak of erasure when I long to be leaf-whelmed, lit by fire-pinks and wild sweet williams. How dare I speak of the marked when I am the diurnal creature damning the night sky with engineered lights. You've generated a realm where we can always see, never see. From an aerial view, here's my bright address, refracting, scrambling, shutting out the dark. Oh, day in the Anthropocene, when I go to pull up buttercups bare-fingered so I can better reach the runners, thin-rooted trams tunneling invasively. Where's hope? Hope's a weed, obscene on my head, springing white hairs. Like an extinct frog who brought life by opening her mouth, any froglets bursting out. I brood, a quiet storm at the water's edge, a bloated cloud, all the row I've swallowed whole. I brood and brood, feeling old hop in his final state, crying out, I am gall, I am heartburn, until I feel a blaze unknown, feel first my lungs deflate, then, like a sharpening harp, the stomach acids start to transform. I'm breathing through my skin as an army grows in full. Will all things return if I so choose to burp in nameless forms? Ooh. <laughs> Bravo. That was so good. <laughs> wow. You. What a beautiful example. I don't know how you feel about longer poems. I love long poems precisely because quite often there's a focus on shorter lyrics. Mm. And then you don't really get a chance to see the kind of energy and excitement that a longer poem, even with lyric elements, a longer poem can create. And I think that's why I love this poem so much. Thank you. Yeah, precisely because of its long form, you get these kind of movements. You get joy, you get sorrow, you get 
wondering. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you constructed this poem as you, as you were going about making it. First of all, of course, this conversation with Gerard Manley Hopkins that you're having, but also the way in which the poem moves from one kind of stanza to the next and one sort of emotion to the next. I was reading a book called Biological Exuberance, Animal Homosexuality and Natural Diversity by Bruce Bagamile. And so I was just immersed mm. in all of these just delicious facts about difference in the natural world. And so that was like one one obsession that was in the air. And then I was simultaneously reading Gerard Manley Hopkins. And it was during a time when I was really busy teaching and didn't have a ton of time to write. And I'd started memorizing The Wind Hoper. And so so I was had this poem that I was saying mm. to myself <laughs> and then and then simultaneously I was just thinking about animals and difference and Hopkins poem Pied Beauty is a poem in which he's he's celebrating difference in the natural world he's also praising God and I started to think it would be really interesting to talk back to him and but then at the same time because I'm living in a moment where I can't not think about the climate crisis then I, I felt like it couldn't just be a poem of praise, that it would need to simultaneously be a lament. And then that felt like, oh, I can't do that in one <laughs> short lyric poem. As Joanne knows, Hopkins is one of my favorite mm -hmm. poets. And uh, as you read through his shorter lyrics, he does some similar movements, but they are separated by different poems. And so he'll have a poem like Pied Beauty that's all praise. But then I'll have another poem that, that's thinking about the way in which we've trammeled the earth and separated ourselves from nature. And so you sort of have to read different poems of Hopkins back to back. And here in a long form poem, we get those movements put together. Mm. And so I'm curious about where those movements happen and how they happen. So one of the places I marked as as one of those moments, you're, you start reading about ecological disaster, climate change and so forth. Uh, and then you say, have I come to terms with dominance? Mm. And suddenly we're into a different kind of conception. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was writing this poem, I was having so much fun at the beginning, just celebrating. And then I was like, all right, Jenny. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> um it, I mean, you just start when you start thinking about ecology, you're like, what's, what is natural? What is normal? What is invasive? Am I invasive? And then it gets more complicated. And so I didn't think the poem could solve all the problems, but I felt like I needed to let that complexity in if I were to write a poem that felt honest. And can I just follow up on that? Because what I love is that there's a final turn then. So you ask very near the end, where is hope? Yeah. And that's what gets us thinking about this image of this frog. Could you unpack that last page, that, that last couple of stanzas and how this poem comes to a close? Sure. And I feel like I should, you know, just share for your listeners that I was listening to NPR one day and, and there was an episode and it was about the female gastric brooding frog, which is now extinct, which was a, is a kind of frog that scientists were trying to like bring back to life. <laughs> Um, huh. and, and the fact I learned about the female gastric brooding frog is that it was, it's a frog where the mother could transform her stomach into a womb. Oh my gosh. Mm. Wow. And so the mother would swallow her own eggs. And then after several weeks of metamorphosis, she could 
earth fully formed froglets out of her mouth. And so if you Google (laughs) gastric uh, brooding frog, you'll find (laughs) pictures on the internet of a frog with like tiny little froglets, like in the mouth, (laughs) like a little frog about to hop out. And um, (laughs) so (laughs) so sometimes (laughs) you have an image when you're writing a poem and you're like, I think that's where it's going to have to end. I don't know how, but um, But I had this impulse. Well, talk about all things counter original, spare, and strange. Right, right. right. I was like, this is a strange being that also is joyful to th- and like amazing to think about. And that's not with us anymore. And that's not with us anymore because of people. So at the end, I guess the turn at the end was one of, of trying to, to imagine the self as that frog, part of this stream of human life. One of the things I notice is that so much of the poem is naming these and celebrating, especially at the beginning, these various forms of things. And also it's a, it's a poem that has its own form to it. I mean, these, this, you're taking a similar sort of form to Pied Beauty and then replicating it over these different pages. And then we end with this line in nameless forms, this future that's not yet sketched out that might break away from any sense of our ability to name it, to know it, to shape it. But it also leads me to think about the form of this poem itself and the various formal features that you're using, both in terms of the structure, the lines, the way it looks like Pied Beauty, for example, but also the, the, the sounds and the rhythms and the rhymes and assonance and so on. Could you say a little bit more about how you structured the sure. form of this poem? Um, so again, since I had decided I was going to kind of take a nod from Gerard Manley Hopkins, something that interests me about Hopkins is that he was kind of a troublemaker when it came to form. And I, I love a troublemaker. Um, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't satisfied with the, with the traditional sonnet. And so he experimented with both lengthening and shortening the form from, and so, you know, a sonnet is typically 14 lines, but this, but his shortened version, which is called the Kirtle sonnet was 11 lines. And, and he was so obsessive about wanting to, come up with his own his own his own version that he even has like a math equation that he'd come up with to figure out the proportions <laughs> of it. Mm. And I just love that. I just love that he was huh. so fixated on reinventing a form. And then I, you know, had to think about well, why? Why does he want to make the sonnet, which is usually 14 lines, shorter? And I, the thing that strikes me is that it seems to me that his curdle sonnets they have an elevated intensity because Everything has to be packed into those 11 lines and it allows for the sounds to really crash into each other. And so that was something that I was interested in playing with. And I felt like Hopkins gave me the permission to do that, that rather than to write this as kind of a more free verse, like narrative poem reflecting about these concerns, it just let me try to say it by letting sounds crash together, which has a... Uh, both like that an elevated intensity in terms of exuberance, but also in terms of um, mm-hmm. the weight and the grief. That That is so helpful to hear you describe that process. And, you know, every page just feels electric with sound to my ear. And it's so enjoyable. But also it feels like it's useful to you to think about not how sound relates to the content and the tensions of the poems, um, the poem that you're creating. So 
I'm looking at the section of the poem that begins, I kiss my hand to male bonobos making out in public. And I just started making a list of all the kind of related linked up sounds, you know, kink, click, fluke, brink, and then call, tail, build, roll, kill. Is that a way that you are naturally inclined to think as a poet? Do you think uh, in an auditory way about how sound guides what you're writing about? It was this exceptionally amplified in in what you did with this poem? Yeah, so I, this poem is an exception. I think that because I decided I was going to write these little, the sequence of these like tightly packed 11 line, like sonic explosions, it just gave me permission to sometimes as a poet, I think, oh, too much alliteration or too much assonance. That might seem like too much. That might seem kind of indulgent mm-hmm. or too sing-songy or like a nursery rhyme or something. But then I thought, Hopkins did it. I'm going to try it. <laughs> I'm going to like feel, I'm going to like let him give me permission. And that is a thing I think that reading allows for is it gives us permission so I feel like he gave me permission to just try it and to not hold back and if something sounded kind of silly like my black billed magpie babble singing to my begging call to just own it and just go for it um so that felt new to try that one of the things I often say to people who don't typically read poetry much or who are new to it is to listen to it first before they try to make sense of it and just hear it and hear the music of it. And so one of the things I love about this poem is that you're explicit about the fact that you're making music and that you've been given the permission to make music through Hopkins. And so I I love these lines. And because I'm minion this morning to gay old music, thanks gentle hop for this, thisness, for teaching attention, how to mark hard word bodies with stress, acute glyphs, blue scores. I love those lines, but it also draws my attention in this poem to some of the values you have as a writer and some of the values that are coming out in this. And so one of those values right there is just for teaching attention, the idea of paying attention. I I do believe that if we pay close attention to something, even if it's a tree, and this is getting, I mean, I feel like Hopkins thought this because he had this whole theory of like, inscape and like the power of looking and and being with the world around him and so i feel like he taught me that but also martin buber writes about the i and the thou as like a space where rather than seeing something in an objective sense you see you see something even if it's a tree with its own where the tree has has subjectivity too This is a poem that is constantly reaching out to uh, sentient and non-sentient beings, whether it's apples, uh, wild sweet williams, a flower, hammerhead storks, bonobos, house sparrows, but also to Gerald Manley Hopkins and to some of his own language, like what you look hard at seems to look hard at you. Does that come from one of his journals? It does come from one of his journals, yes. Yeah, so there's a way in which you're bringing in his, not just some of his formal and aesthetic interests, but his actual voice and uh, bringing in the visit to the friend who's been ill, bringing in the lover. It's just, it's such an all-encompassing sort of vision that again, in a tighter, smaller narrative or perhaps small lyric poem, it would be difficult to achieve, no? Yeah, I think that, I think that absolutely. I think of long poems and sequences as an opportunity to inquire, to, to try to solve 
whatever questions are um, are looming large in my heart. And so that, that I, sometimes I just feel like I can't I can't resolve in one page. And the long poem allows for a kind of prismatic looking and thinking because you turn the page and and you can make a turn and be like, oh, but what about this? And then turn the page and be like, but what about this? <laughs> and it sort of gives the space for for going in all the different directions of inquiry. Well, with all that said, would you be willing to read the poem again? I would be happy to. And this has been such a good conversation. Thank you both. Dappled things. Thank you, day, for dappled things. For ambrosia beetles streaking skylines inside a maple. For pansies speckled as a painter's sleeve. For russet crusted sidewalks of lichen. Airy springs of fiery structured fringe. For pink corpuscles making midges soon to burst at the undersides of leaves. Thank you for all that still somehow counter original, spare, and strange. For the brightening swell of a honeybee's sting. For the alien markings on my girlfriend's cheek and how they form a perfect triangle. Thank you for the risen stars on the skin of an apple, which I slice into fine, thin crescents. For dapple is a word derived from apple, and apple once meant any fruit at all, born from a tree. Lemon, fig, persimmon. Thank you, road apple, finger apple, earth apple, for all that apple was before apple acquired a stigma for being forbidden, marked, dappled, Shadowed, grappling, stamped, juice, controlled, smudging of what twinkles unthinkably. And because I'm minion this morning to gay old music, thanks, gentle hop, for this thisness, for teaching attention, how to mark hard word bodies with stress, acute glyphs, blue scores, for reckoning the risks and disciplines rod between sheets of loose-leafed linen. You knew few might hear your coded address. Do I look hard enough to receive? I'm not moved by God, but I am moved by this, to experience the largesse. What you look hard at seems to look hard at you. Oh, to be marked reciprocally, yes, Please, across, above, below, and with. I kiss my hand to male bonobos making out in public, in spite of Western science trying to explain away. The glorious kink of spinner dolphins whistle clicks over under rolling, belly on belly clasping by the soft tips of flukes, riding dorsal rudders to the brink. I am inspired. Call my girlfriend, say, won't you be my Olympic marmot, chewing on my ear till I lift my tail, my black-billed magpie babble singing to my begging call, my lioness growl, breast, roll on backs afterward, squeaky as killer whales. We could keep contact relentless before the next sequence, diving deep in a reverse roll, double helix formation, splashing swagger to reveal the length of our pink organs. Or we could be lady elephants, 
heading down to the watering hole, gearing up to gather friends in the yard for a yip-per-chorus, hammerhead-stork pile-up. Or love, we could pretend to be utter strangers. I a house sparrow, you a cowbird, hopping over to chatter until you touch your lower bill, head bowed to my breast feathers. Our days are charged by so much nature. The succulents we carry to Alexis in a plastic bag after her surgery, a cat pawing at a mantis behind a window pane. What we didn't wash from the lettuce, dirt that's good danger, not pristine, not a baseline to hearken after romantically. Instead, I read that snowy cities should ready for rising heat, harder rain. Have I come to terms with dominance when I have trammeled and fogged with my breath? Flush cut, redesigned ecology. The dead won't say how the forest was before we came. And the pheromones I bury my face in under your arms make me a hazy archaeologist. I must speak of erasure when I long to be leaf-whelmed, lit by fire pinks and wild sweet williams. How dare I speak of the marked when I am the diurnal creature, damning the night sky with engineered lights. We've generated a realm where we can always see, never see. From an aerial view, here's my bright address. Refracting, scrambling, shutting out the dark. Oh, day in the Anthropocene, when I go to pull up buttercups, bare-fingered so I can better reach the runners, thin-rooted trams tunneling invasively. Where's hope? Hope's a weed, obscene on my head, springing white hairs. Like an extinct frog who brought life by opening her mouth, many froglets bursting out. I brood, a quiet storm at the water's edge, a bloated cloud, all the row I've swallowed whole. I brood and brood, feeling old Hop in his final state, crying out, I am gall, I am heartburn, until I feel a blaze unknown, feel first my lungs deflate, then like a sharpening harp, the stomach acids start to transform. I'm breathing through my skin as an army grows in full. Will all things return? I so choose to burp in nameless forms. Thank you so much, and thank you, Jenny, for being with us today. Thank you both. And thanks to Sarah Band Books for granting us permission to read this poem, which appears in Jenny Johnson's book, In Full Velvet. You can learn more about Jenny Johnson and her poetry on the Poetry for All website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening.